nobody wants to buy solar the first thing. If you look at the rate of return on solar, it's like almost everything else is better than it in our neck of the woods. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investing strategies and real estate-related topics in the western part of the United States. I'm Matt Williams. I'm here with my co-host, Nicholas Cook. Our guest today is Lonnie Hutchison. He's an HVAC contractor since 1990 and a specialist in energy efficiency, geothermal, radiant floor heating, and indoor air quality. He'll talk to us a bit today about the new construction standards, efficiency standards, and what that means for us as consumers and you as investors. Lonnie, I'm excited to have you here with us. Tell us a little bit about who you are now and uh, how you got there. Well, it's been a little bit of a long road. Started off uh, in the field like a lot of the the young and up and comers working on installation. Uh, so from there, became a technician, started my own company, ran that for 20 plus years. Uh, now sold the company to a larger organization in which I work for them still part-time and uh, do some consulting beyond that. Uh, my focus has been for in my entire career more on the high energy efficiency stuff, custom houses, light commercial projects, and uh, in healthy indoor air which these days is becoming more and more important. For sure. Well, COVID kind of brought in the indoor um, air quality pieces and some of those filtration systems, I'm sure. Not to mention the codes are pushing us that direction. People don't realize, but by 2030, all houses are supposed to be net zero, all new homes. And in order to do that, you have to build houses like Yeti coolers. So if you think about a Yeti cooler, you can put ice in it, sit it out in the Mojave Desert, and it will keep ice for five days. So they've decoupled the indoor environment from the outdoor environment. And, but now the problem is if you have no air exchanges between indoor and outdoor, your indoor air quality really suffers. Yeah. You're just recycling the same air. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about those standards. You know, we've heard these, um, benchmarks for some time and you know, they change obviously, uh, based on who starts them and where they start. The West coast seems to be starting some of that. California specifically, some of those standards are elevated and it kind of trickles up the West Coast. Tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe today's standard, yesterday's standards, today's standards, and then, as you mentioned, by 2030, net zero. Talk about that. Yeah, it's, it really is a very tumultuous time inside the industry. Um, we've got this conversation about getting rid of, of natural gas, uh, switching everything over to electricity, um, which creates some grid, grid problems. Uh, that we're seeing right now, and we're not even anywhere de down that pathway with this new equipment that's very sensitive to clean power. We don't always have clean power anymore, and we haven't even stressed the grid yet. So it's going to be an interesting time coming down the road. Uh, trying to, to outlaw natural gas is somewhat strange because natural gas is a very clean burning fuel. And especially in California, I think about 70% of their grid is powered by natural gas fired generation plants. So here you you eliminate natural gas within the commercial building or the residential home, and you simply power them with electricity powered by a gas generator. So it makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, it's a little little odd. And I mean, one thing that I was kind of shocked about, I was talking to somebody the other day about uh, natural gas in terms of their natural gas bill, because it just, I couldn't fathom what they were saying to be true, but it is. They have a house down in uh, Palm Springs, and they said in the wintertime, their natural gas bill was $2,300. Wow. I was like, do you have an Olympic-sized swimming pool that you're keeping at 90 degrees? And he's like, <laughs> no. He's like, just the cost during the wintertime, you know, rises substantially. 
uh, per unit. And so he said, you know, 2300 was one month, 1800 was another month. And then it has a pretty significant drop off, um, you know, after you get through the winter. But I just couldn't believe it. I was like, what are how? That guy needs to meet with an HVAC contractor. Um, yeah, he may be a good candidate for something different because I'd like to see what in the world's going on at his place. Um, and I don't know what they're charging per therm in that neck of the woods. Ours here stays pretty consistent. The only problem we have right now is administration. Our current administration has done everything they can to basically ruin that industry by killing gas pipelines and stopping drilling, fracking, and all this stuff that's creating some some imbalances in the marketplace that will future lead to price increases. But, you know, if you, without that, America's the number one uh, exporter in the world. We were up until this current administration. And that, that was through the last two administrations. It's just this administration's putting the brakes on it all. Yeah, I mean, we were definitely approaching in energy independence for, for a while there. So, yeah, it's, it's very, very odd that, um, that we've chosen to, to import a lot of this stuff. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, a lot of the oil that we get um, comes from Russia, even throughout this conflict. Like we've been on buying oil from Russia from day one after they, you know, invaded Ukraine. So um, it, it's a very interesting ecosystem that I don't fully quite understand. But obviously that's part of the energy conversation, but not necessarily uh, this one. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's interesting to hear about. They're using natural gas to power the grid. It's kind of ironic. Yeah. So just real quick, Lonnie, if the current campaign in california to eliminate that uh, natural gas source what's their alternative what are they going to be using then i mean they to my knowledge they don't have a lot of water in california except technically right now uh, storms and floods but other than that i mean what are they going to use as a replacement to that to fuel their grid we're all looking a little bit too short term because if they continue down the pathway that they're on there is no way to power that so like i just mentioned net zero by 2030 that means people don't need power. If you're generating as much energy as you're consuming, you're no longer needing much from the grid. So conservation becomes where we're going. So heat pumps, but ultimately um, you're looking at really energy efficient structures. So it's the building of the structures. Um, how, do you, how do you integrate that system into a community that has houses from the 1900s, 1920s, 1940s, 1970s, you know, you're obviously not rebuilding those houses and tearing them down. How do you then um, cross-reference that or make that a hybrid community in general? Yeah, and that, it's going to be a long-term plan, but the idea from the big master planners to some degree is to make buying a new home, you'll get a better interest rate than buying an existing home. So uh, currently in Portland, for example, your home has to be rated if you want to sell it. It doesn't have to meet any standard. But the reason they have to be rated is that's step one of a many-step process. Step two will be they have to meet standards. Well, do you, up, do you upgrade your windows for $50,000? Do you put in a new heating system for $30,000? What do you do to bring your home up to the point where you can sell it to a normal consumer who can then get a decent rate on the, on the interest? So we talked a little bit about that with uh, new construction. Can you unpack um, kind of that point system from an energy efficiency perspective and just explain to our listeners, you know, when... Um, developers and contractors are building these homes they have to meet you know that minimum code and then they have that point system can you kind of go over that yeah oregon washington and california all approach it a little bit differently but similar there's this national base for energy efficiency because remember nationally they're trying to push energy efficiency net zero uh, so each state has some autonomy as to what they will and won't accept but 
uh, Oregon, for example, if you want to build a new home, you have these minimum standards. You have to have X, your windows have to meet a certain standard. You can't have more than a certain percentage of windows in the, in the walls. Um, you have to have a certain amount of insulation in the, the attics and the crawls and everything. Beyond that, you now need a points. So you can say, okay, I'm going to put high efficiency heat pump system in or high efficiency uh, heating system, and that'll get you a point. So you've, you've met all the basic standard stuff plus one more item. Washington, they might say um, you need three points, of which a heat pump water heater will give you a half point, a uh, 96% efficient gas furnace or a, a high efficiency heat pump will give you a point. And so they got all these options for points, but you have to do more than what the code says. And you see that uh, something comparable to that coming to the resale market for older homes as far as being able to meet that certain standard. Absolutely. Uh, and the other thing, you know, if you're you're out there as a consumer or an investor and you're looking at two houses that look the same, one's newer and one's 20 years old, and if you if you have a rating system to say, okay, this house is an is 8 on a 10 scale for efficiency and the other one's 2, well, now you know as a consumer, you have some way of of knowing what it is you're buying. I can I can understand that, which was kind of the sale when that first uh, when they first in, uh, implemented the energy scoring was that, you know, we're not going to make you do anything, but we, we just want to know. We want the consumer to know. It's more of a, a consumer confidence or disclosure. It was a disclosure. It was sold as a disclosure idea, which, you know, isn't I mean, <laughs> it's kind of funny because that's what home inspections are for, right? It's for you to help evaluate kind of the condition of the property. And it's unfortunate, though, because it also puts a lot of people at a disadvantage um, from a negotiating standpoint, if you're a seller, uh, obviously with the way the market's been in the last few years, probably inconsequential. But as you move forward and as interest rates continue to remain high, you know, as a buyer or as a seller, you lose some leverage. And if I'm looking at a property with an energy score of two versus 10, you know, I'm going to come back and be like, hey, I want you to do this or that, or I want a discount because I'm going to have to do this in the future. So I mean, it's already putting them on their, their back foot. Um, with the help of those reports, which obviously is helpful in some regards, but it's also kind of an unfair playing field because a lot of times the people who have homes that have not been updated, they haven't updated them because they don't have the resources. Yeah. Well, you know, one one other really significant issue there too with the scoring system, the way that it's set up, and I mean, obviously they could have an offset to this, but they haven't implemented it. If I do, when I represent a client and they've got a 650 square foot, 1923 home, two bedroom, one bath, original windows, original insulation, original crawl space, original everything. That energy score is probably still going to be a uh, nearly brand new, or let's say a 1995, 4,500 square foot home that was energy efficient in its time because of the consumption of energy is much more on a much larger home, you know? So it's not really technically apples to apples if you are comparing a 650 square foot home to a 4,500 square foot home. The most energy efficient 4,500 square foot home is still going to, co- to consume more energy than a 650 square foot home. Right, for sure. And I think that it's interesting when you start looking down the future to these new codes and how homes will be built, a 4,500 square foot net zero home is way harder to accomplish than a 650 square foot net zero home. But the thing that people don't realize, even in our own industry, I'm talking about it all the time, is what we have done as an industry for the last 70 years is antiquated and no longer needed under the new code. You, If you have a Yeti cooler for a home, 
you no longer need a heating and cooling system. It doesn't get hot or cold. You're decoupled from the outdoor environment. The problem is, though, because of the contaminants of living in that home, it'll be a very unhealthy situation. So now you need a ventilation system with a slight amount of heating and cooling capacity. Those products aren't even being developed on the market yet. So here we are, 2030 is not that far away. If we accomplish 2030 without you know, Elon Musk coming up to, with some amazing solar panel that produces three or four times what it currently does, we have to build homes like Yeti coolers, in which case ventilation systems are way more important than a heating system. Well, yeah, and I guess one thing I think about when you talk about you know tightening up the envelope of the building is some of the issues we ran into in the early 90s, which is mold, right? If you can't ventilate the property properly, and especially depending on where you are regionally, I mean, that's a huge concern. Where in the Northwest, major concern. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's very easy to get mold in your home. So I, I, that would be a big question about, like, how do those ventilation systems you know, handle that and what happens if they fail, how quickly, how much time will you have to, you know, rectify the issue before you start getting microbial growth. So, yeah, passive level homes have been dealing with this for a while now. So they are, I mean, they've learned a lot. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember super good sense homes. Uh, yeah, that was an insulation package. <laughs> yeah. You guys are a little young. Uh, they, the super good sense homes, they had a bunch of homes that they over insulated a lot of insulation, but did not air seal. Well, the problem is, is they absorb, they let the humidity levels inside the structures climb without dealing with it. They didn't know they needed to. So inside the walls, inside the ceilings was mold. They, they ended up calling them sick homes and there's thousands of them. Well, that's where all of this energy science came from, studying what went wrong in those environments. And they found out that air sealing is way more important than insulation. So if you're ever doing upgrades realize that air sealing is the most important thing you can do can you elaborate i mean maybe it's kind of obvious but can you maybe define air sealing a little bit more i mean i think i know what it means but just to clarify <laughs> yeah so um say for example caulking around windows and and having good thresholds on the doors not allowing moisture or air to move in the home or out uh can lights are terrible leaking um if, if you're building a new home, you have to seal between the, the decking and the bottom plates and the top plates. All of your plywood joints need to be sealed. Um, so spray foaming can be when you're, if you're building a home, but if it's already existing, you're going to be looking at high density blow in insulation, caulking and sealing type measures. And then uh, on the inside, your ventilation, your bath fan, because they used to leak like a sieve. So a bath fan wasn't all that important, but when the house is tight, now you need good ventilation. Got to have good bath fans, get rid of that humidity and some way of monitoring the relative humidity inside the structure. If the home's breathing like an old home would, um, you might have an average year round, say 30 to 35% relative humidity in our neck of the woods. A tight home, it may be 45%. You've now crossed into the threshold of mold growth. So now you have to have equipment to ventilate that rate back down. Yeah. And it's got to be left on for longer periods of time, I guess, unless it's more efficient. But I mean, a lot of times you have to leave your bathroom fans or things like that on much longer. Because that's, that's a common thing that we see with people uh, on the rental side and things like that is, you know, they're not ventilating the bathrooms well enough and you end up with microbial growth either, you know, inside the bathroom, which there's a lot of things that can contribute to that, right? But, I mean, that's one of the number one things is that People think they leave it on for 10 minutes after they get out of the shower, and it's like, depending on how hot your shower is and how long it was, it's not adequate in the size of the bathroom. So. Right. 
Yeah, that's one of the things. So bath fans now, the ones we promote, would have uh, sensors in them, humidity sensors. If it gets above a certain threshold, it simply turns on. You take that control away from the tenant. That isn't their product. They're not really thinking about the fact that you may have to do work to this building sometime down the road. They just don't turn the bath fan on. So have it come on automatically. Take that control away from them. Yeah, and I think one of the keys, too, is making sure that you get a nice fan that's quiet because I think between, like, a humistat and a quiet fan, most people won't object to that. I think it's right. – a lot of people turn them off because they're noisy historically. Yeah, yeah, and tends to be the ones that are noisy aren't doing a lot. Sure, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this has been kind of fascinating. Obviously, there's a lot of different technologies out there uh, when it comes to heating. You know, one of those is, um, you know, geothermal energy. Uh, and so maybe you could tell us a little bit about – geothermal energy, its efficiency, proper application, kind of where you're seeing it's being used today. So that's a passion of mine. Geothermal is a niche in my local market. We do a lot of work with uh, other companies and consulting work, that kind of thing. But it essentially is a heat pump. But rather than gathering energy from the air, it gathers or rejects energy to the earth. And the earth, you dig down five feet, it stays relatively 50 degrees year round. So imagine in the summertime, you turn your air conditioning on, Rather than the air conditioner on a 100-degree day trying to reject heat to a 100-degree area, it's trying to reject heat to a 50-degree area. And it, the energy just falls that way. It takes so little electricity to get the energy to move that direction. It's very efficient. What kind of space does that need? So, I mean, you're, you're basically burying a coil out in the ground. Uh, it would, I assume, depend on the size of the unit or the amount of heat. or What, what kind of space do you need now? Every home is going to be a little different. A 650-square-foot home or a 4,500-square-foot home have completely different loads. And then the design of the field loop, we call it, is designed based on that load. And it does work better uh, in rural properties, but we've done projects definitely in tight areas, but they're different approaches as to how you accomplish them. Uh, and the neat thing is, as time goes on, what really makes sense with geothermal is imagine doing a, ho a housing subdivision with 40 homes and you have a centralized loop, maybe in an area that's that's going to be a green space or whatever. And it's that that energy for the entire community. So now you can heat water, you can heat and cool the houses. And that loop becomes a common reality. Uh, you could heat a pool with the reject water uh, you can, if one person's heating on one area and another person's cooling, that energy is all going to this mat and simply being reused by different areas. You know, all this stuff is fascinating. A lot of times when you have, you know, you're kind of an early adopter of some of these technologies, they're expensive, right? And so for a lot of people, the question when it comes down to energy is affordability. Um, so from your perspective, you know, what is, what's the best option for the end consumer like, what would you recommend that they do from an affordability standpoint if they're interested in conserving energy or having something efficient? Um, obviously, this is good for people who are homeowners, but also for investors with, with you know, thinking about, you know, operating maybe even multi smaller multi-unit buildings like a duplex or a triplex or something. So what, what are your kind of thoughts on best options for end consumers? Well, the best rate of return on your money and the thing that will get you the biggest benefit right off the... Uh, right off the uh, beginning is, is to do air sealing. Air sealing is the least expensive because it can literally be done sometimes with caulking, spray foam, door seals, things of that nature. And it makes a big difference. Second on that lineup would be insulation. Uh, third would be uh, windows and doors. Fourth, uh, and tied within that, probably that range would be new HVAC systems. 
and then we could keep going down the list and at the bottom is solar. Everybody wants to buy solar the first thing. If you look at the rate of return on solar, it's like almost everything else is better than it in our neck of the woods. Yeah, it's not great. We, uh, My folks put solar panels on their, their home a couple of years ago, maybe less than two years ago, I think now. And, um, you know, while they do get some energy from it and do get some credits from the power company, this time of year, they're not getting any credits. And they have a, they have a power bill that actually looks pretty similar to a normal power bill. <laughs> right. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting payback period for sure. Yeah. Phoenix, San Diego, uh, a lot of those places with a lot more sun hours a year, it's going to be a different environment. Plus their, their price per kilowatt is higher there than ours. We here, we have affordable because of the hydropower, uh, affordable electricity. And if you look at the amount of sun hours in our neck of the woods, it's just the last thing you would do would be the cherry on top of a, of a project. But air sealing is by far the best rate of return on your investment. From a heating cooling system, I mean, I just want to touch on this geothermal piece again. Uh, not as many people know about it. Why is that? Is it the affordability of it? Is it just like a big project? Um, is, was the technology not adopted quickly enough to make to bring the cost of those things down what why is that not a bigger thing it is a regional thing so depending upon where you're at in the country um you know if you go midwest there there is a lot more of it they have extreme winters uh their electric's a little bit higher because of their systems and ours we have a pretty uh, in the northwest we have a pretty mellow environment our electricity rates are pretty affordable and we have a lot of layers different layers of soil and so because of the complexity of that, we don't have as much of it here. But it is pretty heavily used if you go Midwest and back East, where their soil levels are pretty much predictable. Yeah, I guess I wonder just like, you know, if you're burying something in the ground, how that would be affected by places that have like higher water tables or, you know, how, they're, how they endure just a lot of like, you know, we have a lot of rainfall here and sometimes our soil gets pretty saturated. That's part of the reason. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but that's one of the reasons we get and water intrusion into foundations around here too is if you've got high volumes of water going into concentrated areas. Um, how are they adjusting for that? Do they have some sort of um, like kind of French drain around the device or how, how are they managing it? No, in fact, with geothermal loops, the wetter the better. Um, a swamp is fantastic and anything less than that will work too. But um, yeah, because water moving through the soil carries energy. So the drier and more arid soils are more difficult to work with. Bend is hard because of the fact you have pretty arid, dry soils, for example, more deserty. So uh, we have to put a lot more mat in the ground. So in our neck of the woods, with it being moist, that helps us a lot. We can put smaller loops in the ground, making it more affordable. It's, it's so interesting. Uh, the geothermal piece is something that didn't, it doesn't naturally um, process for me in my, in my mind. I'm not in your field, you know? And, um, I remember, you know, when I, uh, for my lake house, I was like, Oh yeah. You know, do I have space on my property to, um, you know, put the line on the property? And he said, well, just throw it in the lake. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a fantastic energy source. It's a really big solar panel and a, and a thermal mass there that we can utilize. And uh, in many cases we do that. It's just a matter of whether that local community would allow you to do it because sometimes they have boats and they don't want them running over it, that kind of thing. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. So um, I have a slight tangent question just because I've been curious about this for a long time and never been able to ask an expert, but so, you know, and I think it was probably in the seventies or eighties, you had like radiant heat becoming somewhat popular it seemed like maybe it was even in the 60s but a lot of this stuff has been was located at the time in the ceiling right 
Given that heat rises, like I don't understand why they would locate <laughs> radiant heat in the ceiling of a structure. Can you kind of speak to maybe why they did that or if that was the right thing or wrong thing to do? Yeah, so theoretically, we'll go theoretically of why they did it and how it was supposed to work. Is theoretically, you were taking a convective energy and converted into radiant energy. Well, the radio waves doesn't matter where you're at. So then they would put a silver lining above it to reject all of those ra- those infrared light waves down. Mm. So, okay, true. But the problem is, is not only are you doing that, but you're simultaneously connected and touching materials, which then creates a conductive situation, which it's right at the ceiling and all that energy is just escaping the building. So it didn't work as well in real life as theoretically they wanted it to, but they are a comfortable form of heat and they're just really expensive to operate. Well, I mean, they're still doing uh, heated floors, right? I mean, uh, in bathrooms and um, you do a lot of commercial type uh, radiant heat in some of the warehouses and things like that, right? I mean, that's where the radiant uh, heated floors may be advantageous. Is it more efficient for some of those warehouses and bays? Yeah, because you're you're no longer having duct work and that kind of thing running all through the whole structure to try to move this energy. You you just heat up this thermal mass in this slab. And it's really nice because it keeps the concrete dry. And so you have uh, so specialized documents. If you have a, a warehouse where they, they specialize in those kind of documents, um, it's a good thing because you don't have boxes that are on the floor getting moist. But we've done, uh, we did one, it was about 240,000 square feet and it was all radiant floor. And, and that was probably 10 years ago now, all specialized documents. And it's been great. Uh, from an efficiency perspective, it still is better than the, you know, the duct, ducted HVAC systems. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. So stratification is where hot air rises inside of a building. So imagine if you have a 20-foot tall building and you have hot air that goes up there to keep 70 degrees, 60 inches off the floor, it may be 85 degrees at the ceiling. Well, with radiant floor, you're not doing that. You're heating a thermal mass through, so all of the objects are warm. So the ceiling may only be 68 degrees. So if you can lower that ceiling temperature by 15 degrees i've improved the thermal efficiency of the structure nice you know obviously a lot of these things you know these aspirational things around net zero i mean it sounds very appealing um but there are always trade-offs when when you're doing things like that and sometimes you know the people who are implementing rules regulations don't understand the life cycle it takes to get to something like that in in a in a scalable way um so just from your perspective you know is there an economically sustainable way to go about transitioning us from, you know, using the current systems we, we do to a, to a better way and a better system where we're more efficient that's not also going to have negative ramifications for the economy? I think we have to focus on the envelope and the structure itself. Our industry, they're trying to be the solution. HVAC industry is saying, oh, look, at, we've got really, really efficient heat pumps, super, and they just want everybody to spend 30 grand on these things. Well, that's that's great, but that's still not zero, net zero. That's not that's you can't get there. We need really energy efficient structures. There are plenty of new things out there. I just recently found a concrete block that has an R twenty eight value. So imagine you build your house out of this concrete block. You can stucco the outside, you can veneer the inside, and you're done. Cool. Well, that's interesting. And so, I mean, what do you think the next steps are in the code process? Which like benchmarks? should we be setting or moving forward? Um, you know, like how, what, what should we be doing versus maybe what you see we're doing? 
so this last code cycle addressed the fresh air requirement in, in the new homes and uh, in Oregon, Washington, and California. And we have to bring in fresh air. Washington does it one way, Oregon another. What I think they did wrong is they gave us this little middle stepping stone that's pretty easy to meet. But the next code cycle that's coming, we, we make a big leap to the ventilation stuff. So the next code cycle, if they don't modify it, probably means all new homes will get ERVs or HRVs. And that's a big step. I wish they would have done a little bit smaller step between the two, but they chose not to. Can you define what that means, ERV, HRV? Yeah, so an ERV is an energy recovery ventilator. An HRV is a heat recovery ventilator. They operate similarly, but a little bit different. Uh, they bring fresh air into the building while exhausting the stale air, and then they take the energy that you're exhausting and and get it to the air coming in. So you temper the air coming in by the air that you're exhausting. So rather than just turning a bath fan on and exhausting your paid for conditioned air, you're gonna extract all the energy out of it that you can and put it back into the air coming in. While filtering it in some way, I guess you're sending that through a air scrubber or something? Um, you can either tie it to an HVAC system or have it stand alone. And you can do HEPA filtering. Um, it, you can de de do dehumidification with it. And there's so there's a lot of benefits. You can re replace bath fans. It becomes your bath fans in many cases. Uh, you know, I have used the analogy that you've given me um, years ago for a lot of clients to try to explain the difference between, you know, having a heat pump and having a, just a furnace. And during the winter, your, your furnace kind of acts, acts as your backup heat system. Um, but that fan is always going. So you've got the blower fan in there and it's basically utilizing your heat pump from the exterior that's modifying the air temperature and that fan is just pushing it through the system. Are you saying the ERV system is kind of doing something similar to that? Yes. And if you do have a furnace system, you can have the HRV or ERV push the fresh air into your furnace. So now the furnace distributes that fresh air throughout the home through normal operation. And then it has to do less work because the heat is already fairly conditioned to the indoor temperature. Yep. Gotcha. So one of the things that I've done a lot of work in lately is indoor air quality, probably somewhat to do with the pandemic, but the, uh, seems like I've gotten a lot of clients that have some sort of an autoimmune disorder or allergies or something. And there's this conversation now around, well, what humidity level is whatever your problem is, what humidity level do we need to maintain? So say, for example, whatever it is that you're allergic to grows between 40 and 45% relative humidity, then my, my job with the ventilation system and dehumidifiers and so on is to make sure we stay outside of that range all the time. And that's the amazing thing about indoor air quality is with ventilation, you now have some control over that. Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, I'd be probably a fairly large fan of that. I mean, I, if I go in the wrong time of year to like Sun River or Bend and all those cedar trees are out there just dumping pollen, it will destroy me. Like I <laughs> even I've stayed in like hotels down there and sometimes it just that pollen gets everywhere. So um, I could definitely appreciate some some clarity on that. Um, but yeah, no, that's interesting. It sounds like Lonnie could just help you stay inside all the time, never get hurt, make you weaker over time. That's, that's, that's what it sounds like. We're doing, yeah. But right? you know what? You'll want to sign up for a maintenance contract. So that's good. <laughs> it's all about numbers. <laughs> well, uh, thank you all for joining us so far. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back with Lonnie Hutchison. 
Sleep Sound Property Management is a full-service, professional management company serving the Portland metro and Vancouver area. We give our clients back their most valuable asset, time. By delegating your property management, you'll be able to focus on what you do best while minimizing your liability and maximizing your return. Learn how we can help at sleepsoundpm.com. Okay, so uh, back with Lonnie Hutchison. He's talking to us today about HVAC, some of the systems, some of the policies, codes um, that are kind of leading our future and taking us where we need to go. We're, we're going to kind of go macro. We've, we spent the first half of the podcast here looking at some of the micro pieces. We're going to look at macro for just a minute. Lonnie, let's tie in wind, solar, natural gas. All of these are, are kind of key components of a conversation that Oftentimes, it's too politicized. We're talking more on the energy efficiency piece and just, you know, from a practical perspective, how we get there. Um, you know, obviously, some of these push the integration into the systems. Are you seeing hybrid systems being the best option? Is it geographically specific? Um, you know, do some areas, obviously, some areas have more wind. Some areas have more water. Some areas have more sun. So what do you see as being really a healthy way for us as a, a nation to apply an integration into, into sustainable opportunity for more efficient systems. Yeah, that that is a really uh, probably a podcast by itself. But in general, I think it is going to be macro. Uh, I mean, microclimate in that environment. Every area has something different to offer. We have a lot of water here, so hydro. Uh, they've got a project going up uh, Columbia River that's slated to go. That where the wind generation will power these pumps. These pumps will pump the water up to a man-made reservoir. And then when we need the power, they'll run the water through a series of generators back down to the river. So we're taking what currently is waste energy that we can't utilize and making turning it into future kinetic energy. So that's a great idea of a project where you have water. Um, areas with wind, uh, they're going to need to do that. Areas with that don't have that, they're going to need to look at whatever they have available and it's going to be multiple different systems to create this but if we just think about conservation becomes dominant for sure it's conservation that has to lead the way if we're going to power vehicles trucks and homes off of the grid the grid simply is not big enough if you look at the grid how old it is the amount of money we've spent as an as a nation investing back in the grid it is nowhere near big enough we have to do conservation and we have to bring in all kinds of different energy sources so that now that usage is localized. You know, one of the challenges I think is we have such a divided uh, perspective that I'm, I'm right, you're wrong, or I'm right, you're evil, or that's not the right way, this is the right way, instead of like this collaboration. And I think that that's one of the challenges that we face currently is that, you know, we have a system, quite frankly, that every four to eight years, you, you have a turnover of ideas, and it undoes half of the stuff the prior administration did. It starts things that aren't really going to be able to be implemented fully, and it's kind of a disaster in that way. One of the challenges or frustrations that I have is, you know, um, I, don't, I, I want everything to be net zero, and I would love there to be zero emissions, but I want to get there in a really practical way that doesn't kill our economy on, uh, along the way. I want to utilize natural gas while we have it. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, has come up with uh, the natural gas piece is not just the 70% of the power being generated uh, from in California is natural gas, but you've got all these vehicles, right? You've got all the trucks and the forklifts and, 
you know, all of those that have converted because we thought that that was the clean energy. Um, there's a, another element to that competing with other countries. What does that look like when you compare the systems that we have here to the systems you know, overseas. Yeah, that is an interesting thing. So Europe, for example, they've just recently put natural gas on the renewables list. So it's not what they're getting away from. It's what they're going to. They had nuclear and they began closing a lot of those down and they're now having power issues because of the power issues. They're now opening up coal plants at a record rate to mat to meet with the, with the uh, temporary need. So in time though, they'll be able to fill that back in with natural gas as they get those plants online. So here they go and try to make this big leap forward, but they go too fast. The system begins collapsing. Now they have to go backwards a long ways with coal to be able to bring it back up to a standard. And I think that's what's going to happen here if we're not careful. Hmm. Obviously, we all have our own individual sovereign nations and things like that for the most part. Um, one of the things I wonder, though, and, it is, and I'm not certainly advocating for not doing anything by any means, but you know, when you look at it, global emitters of CO, um, and CO2, things like that. China is up there. I mean, they're, they're dwarfing what Europe and the U S produce annually. Um, and so if you've got a country who's creating that level of emissions, are we actually having an impact, you know, on what's, what's happening? Are we on a you know track record for not maybe track record, but are we, you know, moving in the right direction because it just seems like, you know, what we're going to be doing is increasing cost, asking people to reduce their standard of living until technology potentially catches up, um, which, you know, obviously is probably somewhat fair to a degree, but, you know, whether or not people are going to want to do that, uh, jury's still out on that, and I would assume that they won't, um, not unless it's by some sort of major incentive or force. Um, but well, you've got countries like, you know, China and, and behind China, India, that are just large global emitters. I mean, like, is this going to be all for nothing? Well, and it's interesting here, the U.S., we're touting the fact that we're trying to lead the way. So we're getting all our batteries from China and, you know, for so much of our stuff. Yeah, they are trying to build some here, but for the most part, we're still getting a lot of that stuff there where they have much less restriction on the emission rates of those types of productions. So I, it's difficult. Um, we've, we've done some studies and like a, for an, a car, for example, an electric vehicle, it will take eight years before the electric vehicle will be less contaminating to the environment than a, ve a, a full gas vehicle because the amount of, of contaminants from, from digging out the, the uh, minerals to build the batteries, to the plastics, to all of those components, the, it takes seven years for that to be a break-even point. So imagine you buy your Tesla, seven years later, it's the same as a Toyota Camry. Yeah, and I think one of the things too is with technology, the way that it evolves, people will probably not have vehicles as long. I mean, seven years for a vehicle, there's a lot of people that will trade that out within that time frame. Well, I guess one thing that kind of brings us to the other topic uh, as it relates to this is, you know, creating incentives and so forth. So are you, you know, can you maybe speak a little bit about any sort of tax incentives or rebates that are out there that, you know, are going to help the consumer, you know, adopt these programs. And uh, if, you, if you're not seeing stuff like that out there or sufficient stuff, like what, what sort of things would you, you know, promote or suggest would be good for taxpayers um, as incentives through, you know, either credits or rebates or deductions. So on, and there's, you know, different target markets with this conversation, but let's say it's your own home. There's some great federal stuff. Uh, there's 30% federal tax credit 
that's a you know dollar for dollar credit, not a deduction, for geothermal and solar and wind and a few of these other things. So as long as those particular things make sense in your environment, that is, you can't look at that as it doesn't matter where you live because it does. Uh, then you, beyond that, you get into smaller things like heat pump, water heaters. Those are all localized things and PUDs and the local power grid system is going to offer rebates on those. State of Oregon has their own. So the problem with some of that stuff though, is they're going to, they're going to funnel you in they're paid for by a certain organization and they're going to funnel you down a path of products that they want you to buy in order to do, to buy those products, you're going to pay such a premium that the rate of return looking at a big picture isn't there. So you have to be careful with some of that stuff, but the federal ones are great as long as they make sense. You know, one, one of the things that I've always wondered is, you know, obviously uh, tax rebates and incentives, those cost the taxpayer right out of the gate. Oh yeah. So if you want them, you know, if the investment in these processes are, is made, and that's, uh, you know, from a moral perspective or a theoretical perspective, however you want to put it, from a political perspective, that's what you want to push, um, those have sunsets. So what happens at the end if the numbers don't make sense? Uh, do you see, as these incentives go away and the tax strategy, the tax benefits go away, do you see people still saying, yeah, I'll take it? Um, a percentage, the ones that can afford it, sure. The the other ones, there's it's a it's a blend because sometimes it's close to to making sense financially, and you know I, every person has that comfort level. For me, as an investor, if I'm looking at something and it starts getting into a three or four percent return, I, yeah, I don't care. I, my my moral obligation to invest in something that won't pay me back just because someone says it's better for the environment, yeah, you, you haven't pushed my button yet. You need to convince me. Other people, a 3% return and having something done positive for the environment is enough. And so that it's a really personal thing. Now, when you're looking at an investment in like a, a maybe a duplex or a triplex and you're saying, okay, what should I do here? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to be your financial guide here, but I'd be really careful upgrading too much in those environments. Your rate of returns poor. So I would do things that would make the longevity of that investment last like indoor air quality, bath fans, that kind of thing. So if you've got a 20 unit building and geothermal is a way for you to uh, make it more efficient, you, you've got to redo all the systems and they're, you know, maybe not mini splits, maybe they're cadet heaters. And you're thinking, okay, well, I could do a geothermal on this 20 unit complex and then just pack that into the rents, um, say, you know, an all inclusive rent. And in that scenario, from an investment perspective, that may be an option where some of these systems may be applied. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. That's a great situation where, where now maybe you've maxed out your rent rate for that the given market. You've kind of maximized your rate of return. Well, what can you do? You can go be be the energy provider and you're going to make a, a profit on that. So it's a way of you upping your margin on that product on a monthly basis from here forward. You're going to now be the energy provider. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, I mean, all this stuff sounds great. Obviously, technology is always a major component, um, but, you know, we do, you know, predominantly management of, you know, rental property, whether it's residential, multifamily. And, and, you know, one thing that we are running into, aside from the fact that we've got, you know, to navigate some of the new technologies and the costs and the regulations and all the code changes is the job market. People who are actually going to install this stuff, people are going to learn about this new technology. And, um, you know, there's a lot that's involved with training people and, we've got a huge generational gap across the board and across the country in trades. 
right? It's just it's just an industry that people were, in some ways, discouraged from going into. Um, but now, you know, you look at some of these positions and these jobs. I mean, people can make substantial amounts of money working in HVAC or plumbing or electrical type of trades. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what you've seen in the job market and kind of what your thoughts are um, in terms of just, you know, what needs to be done to kind of meet the labor requirements for implementing a lot of this stuff. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because that is that right there is a big portion of what I do on a on a daily basis is working through some of these issues and our the organization that I'm involved in as well as the other ones I consult for. It's a massive problem. So at the same time that the that the industry has the most technologically advanced HVAC and water heating systems that we've ever seen, we have the least amount of qualified technicians. There are we're not turning out mechanics as as part of our schooling system so the ones that can do the work demand really high wages and that's why some of these big organizations you know like these big hedge fund managers are buying hvac companies right now because they're looking at from the outside looking in that they see the potential for massive margins the hole they can't figure out how to fill is to get people to do the work because these things are very tricky so now what becomes we no longer have service technicians that are fixing things we have people out there diagnosing the fact that it's got a problem and now we replace it so 10 years ago we'd fix these things we don't fix them now we throw them in the dump and go get a new one and that's terrible <laughs> do you see a solution is there a light at the end of the tunnel is there a process that um or do you just see it being a you know uh swap and replace you know model yeah when it comes to them uh, changing it it's a very dark tunnel i don't see the light yet it's going to have to take a cultural shift and it's going to have to take it at the school level and then all the way through. We're going to have to promote, which I have done, and I find that there's a lot of pushback from the local school system. They're pushing everybody to college. And the ones that are dropping out or failing in school that aren't going to make it in college, they think those people are going to come into this industry now and somehow do good. They don't. They fail here too. It takes somebody sharp, willing to learn, and willing to stick with it to learn all these new systems now. They're complicated. There's a lot of liability associated with trades, right? If you're an electrician and you cause a fire, people die. If you're a bad plumber, you could have a water line blow apart and you know flood a house. Um, obviously in HVAC, people can die from if you don't know how to exhaust things. I mean, like I don't want somebody who's failing out of school to become the tech, you know, to work on that. Obviously if they can get the training and they're proficient, fine. But like you said, sometimes, I mean, if you're not successful in one place, you may not be successful in another place because of the academic requirements. It's, it's you know, it's just kind of like cars, right? It's not, you know, changing your oil or spark plugs or timing belt on a new car is very different than something that was built in the 80s or 90s. You know, I imagine that's the same thing you're seeing with, you know, um, a lot of HVAC equipment. You've got circuit boards that are, you know, doing things that are far more intricate than original equipment. Very similar to the automotive industry. You know, I'm a mechanic. That's what, you know, I grew up, I'm a mechanic. Whether I work on cars or race cars or trucks, it's all the same to me. The same thing with auto mechanic. I bought a new car. We took it in. It has a light on it. And it's only like three months old. And they told me it's going to be four months so they can look at it. They have no mechanics. This is a brand new vehicle for, from a big dealership. They have no mechanics. So it's not just the HVAC industry that's suffering. It's both. And and that's it's a problem. It's a dark tunnel. Well, it's an interesting scenario because um, 
you know, there are people that are not meant to go to college, not to say that they couldn't go to college, but their brains don't work that way. Trade schools would be an amazing opportunity. And if someone comes in new and says, hey, I'm mechanically inclined, I like working on stuff, I tinker, train me to do it on HVAC. Three years into the business, they're making what? So if they are exceptional, yeah, they're making 150 to 200. That's so wild. Normally, well, I'm seeing 70, you know, um, but a lot of these guys aren't exceptional. You know, they're, they take daily convincing to show up, um, daily convincing to finish the whole day. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it's a process. Well, it's interesting too. We live in a kind of a w- interesting dynamic after the, um, you know, the zoom boom, you know, where a lot of people are working from home and it may not be appealing even for $150,000 to go crawl underneath a house and install ductwork and, you know, diagnose a furnace and you got to be out in Sherwood today and then you're going to head up to Vancouver. You know, you got a lot of driving, you got a lot of stuff where, you know, you've got colleagues that are making 70 to 80 grand a month sitting at home. We also have a generation though, a full, you know, generation basically that has worked in only a prosperous economy. I mean, there's a substantial amount of the labor force that's working now that was not working in 2008, right? And so they haven't seen some of the stuff. And what we're seeing now, you know, I think with interest rates, we're going to have uh, a humbling effect, you know, on uh, the economy because, you know, the number of layoffs that are reported to be coming over the next six months is going to be pretty substantial. Um, and, and I think that, you know, when you, when, ten, when things are good and easy, you know, people defer to obviously what's going to be most convenient and, and uh, comfortable for them. But, you know, there's going to be, you know, higher unemployment and that's, the, the Fed has to uh, create that environment because, you know, you've got wage inflation and you cannot arrest wage inflation until you break the economy and, ri- and, and create uh, higher unemployment. You know, I, f- I find it amazing. We were just dealing with this last week. I look at the market. I look at the, the fundamentals. I'm also a real estate investor personally, and I'm looking at the fundamentals of the market local and across the country. And I'm, I'm going, OK, things are cooling. And and yet the problem in our organization, we just had to give up an entire subdivision of work that we had locked down, contracts signed. We don't have enough manpower. In in a in a cooling market, we can't supply enough manpower for the small demand that because we're not marketing, we're not looking, we're simply trying to serve the people we've always served, but they're trying to do a little bit more. We can't keep up. We can't find manpower. It is a, an incredible problem. It's not work. And I've, and I've said this for a long time in my industry, it's not whether or not you can get work in the future. It's whether or not you can get work done. That will be all the difference between the six, the the ones who are successful and the ones can't make it because an HVAC and people don't realize, realize it. It's the second riskiest business in America annually. Uh, number one's restaurants. There's more restaurants that go bankrupt every year than any other business in America. And HVAC companies is number two. And I followed that stat 25 years ago. And I looked at it just about five years ago and it was still in the same position. What is it that causes that? I mean, that's, that's substantial. I mean, obviously restaurants, you look at that and it's like, well, you know, you got to earn your customers, you know, every day there, you know, you've got a lot of perishable products and things like that. Like what, what's driving that risk in, in HVAC? It's the, the failure that so warranty. Whether they install it well, you know, you got to estimate it on the front end, do well, your labor, you got to get it in in time, and then the warranty. So unlike a dealership, an automotive dealership, say you go buy a Ford, you sell somebody a Ford truck, 
and it's got a problem. That thing comes back to your shop and you get to work on it and get paid by Ford. It becomes a profit center. In an HVAC company, that is a profit loser. Well, these companies are changing their products so fast, they are not putting out products that are tested, tried, and true across the board, every brand. So if you think that one brand is better than the other in that aspect, they're not. They're all having issues. And the ones that eat that are the dealers. Hmm. So if, if say, Carrier or Train or Lennox or somebody puts out a product that has some issues, which they all do, and the field technicians will find those eventually and go, man, there's a, a design flaw here. All the money that's lost isn't the factories. It's the dealer. Hmm. Uh, you know, there's got to be something said to, you know, there are lots of small HVAC companies as well, one-man shows type thing. Uh, the way you run your business oftentimes, um, you know, not to be stereotypical, but it's hard to be the professional at what you do and also run a business. Those are two different jobs. Yeah. And so when you're out working on a furnace, you come home, you're doing billing or you're trying to figure that out. I mean, I'm sure that that's a, a drag, especially you know, in a system in the trades where, you know, you're good at being a mechanic, you might not be good at bookkeeping, sending out bills and running a business that that all kind of kind of get behind. Oh, yeah, the soft skills in a lot of maintenance is not great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that's one of those things. If you have the technical skills and the soft skills, you could probably hit home runs. And a lot of those people start their own chops because they can do both. But most Yeah, I mean, from our experience, I mean, that's one of the things that we run into Trish trying to hire maintenance techs for our management company is like, Somebody who can, in writing, explain what they identified to be the problem and what they're doing about it in some sort of really basic way, very, very difficult. I mean, it's just like, it's just one of those things. We have to give people, you know, in an interview process, writing tests to see if they can do it because, I mean, it just doesn't look professional. If yeah. You can't explain, you know, without a bunch of spelling errors or, you know, slang or whatever it happens to be. It's like, this is going to clients. These are going on invoices. Like we need to. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and to Lonnie's point to have to babysit them the entire way and be like, note the file. Well, I did the work. Yeah. You, you didn't complete the job, which is noting the file. So I know what you did. And I can explain that to the client when they say, Hey, why is there a $460 bill on this? I need to know what to tell them without calling you and saying, Hey, you never told me. Can you tell me? So, you know, to, to your point, I think that there is some, there's some, uh, an element of magic to that. So you mentioned uh, briefly, um, well, first off, is there anything that we're missing in this industry that, that you think our listeners would want to know as far as, uh, you know, directions or red flags or uh, new products or technology that's coming out? Anything that we haven't covered so far? Well, you know, so when it comes to automotive, when it comes to any of this machinery, I, I rarely want to buy the first year, right? Same thing in our industry. If it's coming out, especially now, is a really tumultuous time. They're changing the refrigerant. They're changing the way that they rate the equipment. So all the gear has to go back through a re-rating system. They change the efficiency requirements. So new refrigerant, new rating, new efficiency standards. Everything is getting rushed through at every level. Do not buy any brand new product the first year. It's been rushed through, whether the factories, the, the brochures won't tell you that, I promise you. But as a mechanic, <laughs> been working on it for 35 years now, it's happening. So uh, we touched a little bit on this, those 80% efficient furnace furnaces that run for 25, 30 years. I mean, I don't know what, I, I've pulled a couple 35 year, I mean, I have a house in Boise and that, uh, it's a 1969 house with a 1981 furnace, I think. 
and it is still chugging along. I mean, it, it sounds like a freight train, but it works like a freight train right now because right. that thing is still running. So you're, you're saying some of those, though lower efficiency, uh, those things are easier to maintain and more uh, sustainable as far as reliability goes. Yeah, if you're either owning these rental properties or you're managing these rental properties, you want more simplistic systems in there. 80% furnace and, and uh, say a 14 seer air conditioner. You just don't want to have the, compl- the complex systems in those. The clients aren't gonna, the uh, tenants aren't gonna take care of them. They're not going to really appreciate or pay you for the additional energy savings. Now, if it's your own home and you're looking to maximize this or you wanna do these things because uh, to get closer to the net zero, okay. Just understand it's not a return on investment type situation. Um, just don't let the brochures fool you. Yeah, I've had a lot of conversations with clients when they're getting ready to sell and they're like, hey, I, I'm gonna put solar panels on. We'll be able to sell the house for another $30,000. I said, well, hang on a second. It costs you fifty thousand, and you're thinking you're going to sell it for thirty thousand more. But when I pull comps, that's not the case. It might make it more marketable, and maybe someone will say, oh, you know, that's the reason I'm choosing this house over that house, which you know technically might be a little less time on the market. But I have not seen someone pay more relative to the cost of that solar system for a home because of the solar system. Yeah, pe- people don't generally pay premiums for things that they can't firsthand experience or see. Right, if it's not inside the home. I mean, that's why improvements to kitchens and bathrooms are big drivers, you know, and other amenities and things like that. But, you know, if it's on the roof and you're not seeing it every day, I mean, it's not gonna drive drive the price substantially. Doing custom homes for a lot of times, I can't tell you how many times I would go home very angry that I just met with the, the consumer and they just signed a 75,000 granite countertop uh, budget but couldn't sign a $50,000 complete heating, cooling, ventilation, and indoor air quality system. <laughs> uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, because that's not sexy. That's what my wife says. She's, I just tell her, hey, we got a new roof going on. It's going to be $15,000. She said, boring. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> she and doesn't, that's she it. doesn't care. You know? Yeah. So that's, that's funny. So you touched a, a little bit to close us all out here. You touched just a little bit on you know, you being a real estate investor as well, tell us a little bit about what you're investing in and kind of what you're looking at right now, maybe your perspective on market condition, that kind of thing. Yeah, so predominantly into the manufactured home park arena, um, multifamily, some small multifamily stuff, and then uh, residential, single family residential stuff. I got some stuff in Florida, Georgia, looking at Texas uh, this weekend actually. Um, I feel it's, it's not time yet, but I'm preparing, it's going to be time. Um, as investors out there, I mean, we should be licking, licking our chops. It's getting close and just be ready. Uh, these we're not like, for example, where I'm looking at in Austin and Houston, they're probably about 15, percent uh, down in the market value now, probably about halfway where it's going to go. I think, um, looking at Florida, I've already got some in Florida and, uh, they're, they're softening. So getting ready to, to pounce when the market's right. So that's what I, that's what I'm doing. Nice. Well, and you were talking off air uh, also about some of that shadow inventory that they've got. It'll be interesting to see how they launch that and what the financial institutions are doing. I have seen um, banks being a little more flexible with, um, you know, transferring some some notes over. And there I think that there's going to be some flexibility there. I'm looking at the timing being late fall through next winter as being kind of an opportune time to start really getting aggressive and looking. Um, Personally, that's kind of what I'm seeing or how about you, Nick? What do you what do you see in the market doing? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I definitely think that it's clear that interest rates are going to continue to rise. We've we've got to do that because we've got to break the economy to get again, like I talked about earlier, unemployment numbers up. We need people to lose their jobs. I mean, there's just really no way around that because, you know, we've got wage inflation, which is, you know, a cyclical event. If you've got, you know, wages going up, then prices go up, and then you know, it just it's it's cyclical. So we've got to we've got to solve that problem, and we're we're really nowhere near the uh the rate that we need to be obviously it's not clear where it is i mean i wouldn't be surprised if they increased rates another 200 basis points and i mean the biggest thing that we're going to probably see as it relates to this is the performance of the u.s dollar uh, you, know, you know how it's being valued globally that's going to be a major driver and then like everything um the whole economy lives and dies by the uh bond market at the end of the day and that's something that has just you know, people have just been getting rolled <laughs> in the bond market. Um, and so, I mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, now, I mean, you can look at investing in treasuries and get kind of a 5% return depending on what, you know, uh, time horizon you're looking at. But theoretically, theoretically, treasuries are risk-free investments. So you're talking about getting a 5% return on a risk-free investment. Like, why would you invest in something to get 7 or 8 that's got a lot more risk, right? So, you know, again, um, that's going to force the rate of return that uh, investors are going to demand higher. We're going to see cap rates, you know, start to uh, to rise, you know, in markets and things like that. And, you know, these kind of sub-4 cap rates are probably going to go by the wayside because there's just not a lot of people out there looking at, um, especially commercial-level property you know um so yeah i think we're we're on our way to a a more of a downturn i think that you know maybe like you said october november december is when we'll probably start seeing some of that stuff materialize but it may even be delayed um you know till next year but it's hard to say because politics plays a really weird role in that um you know the fed is supposed to be an independent body but it's not (laughs) (laughs) i mean you can look at its policies and uh the wishes of the president and you know the chairman's appointed by by the president and uh you know they they have incentives to to cooperate so um but but now i mean i think i think uh powell is probably one of the more disciplined chairman that we've had for a while you know and so we'll we'll see how how things go but uh this most recent meeting didn't sound rosy there's kind of an undercurrent, a certain sense of denial and uh, optimism, I think, that people have. But if you look at some of the undertones, you know, the default rates and repossessions of vehicles and the savings rates going way down, the credit um, debt rate going way, way up. You know, one of the interesting things with this, um, you know, Biden just released the, his budget and it's just, you know, it's not a, a deficit problem. It's a spending problem. And I think that if you look at anybody who's been successful, they've been able to utilize leverage but not overextend themselves. And it's interesting that from a political perspective, it has said that, you know, capitalism killed the market in the recession back in the day when things just tanked. And it was the over leveraging of all the all the people that were trying to buy a house. They shouldn't they should never have taken out those loans. Well, that's what the government's kind of doing right now is taking out a massive amount of debt exactly what they said killed the economy last time, but they're doing it on a massive level. So, I mean, I, I think that there um, hopefully will be some changes there. Um, from an investment perspective, I think the next couple of years are, are going to um, feed some opportunity to us. So I, I think that's a positive for us. But, you know, I agree with you on that. 
one of the things I was just reading is that uh, two, it was either two or two and a half years ago, the average auto loan price in uh, payment in America was just under $500 and now it's 900, a 60% increase in two years. There's no way that the average household can absorb that along with the additional uh, food pricing and everything else. Um, so that, that market is poised to completely uh, recess. Uh, that's a house payment. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. What's funny about that. I've we got a manufactured home park that, uh, you know, the house is maybe worth $7,000, but there's two $100,000 crew cab diesel pickups in the driveway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a massive uh, misalignment of priorities and, you know, for a lot of people. And um, I mean, nobody wants to be fiscally responsible. And I, and I think that, you know, it's just this, this is history repeating itself. I mean, every fiat currency that's existed in human history over the last 5,000 years has collapsed, right? And it's pretty much for the same reasons. And it happened, you know, in Rome, it happened in, you know, Europe, both in, you know, France and UK and you know, we've we've defaulted on our currency technically a couple of times, and uh, we're, the thing that we're just fortunate about is that, you know, we're still in the strongest position because like we're all bad, but we're not the the worst, you know, <laughs> in relative scheme of things. Um, but but I think that that's something that's going to change. I mean, I think that one of the things that probably was the most significant impact on the U.S. dollar over time is not even necessarily the uh, runaway money printing that we've had which has been substantial and obviously has created a an inflation wave that um that we're experiencing now and we'll probably continue to experience until we get that under wraps but um is we made it clear to other countries that if you don't agree with us politically we will take your assets and so when russia invaded ukraine and the u.s government and you know other uh, western european governments seized the assets or froze the assets of Russia that spooked everybody because it's like, Oh, we no longer can rely on investing in the United States in a manner that is you know, less risky because if we say or do the wrong thing, they're going to take our money. And so you can see those countries start to diversify around that. I mean, China has recently done stress testing on their banks to see what would happen if, you know, the U.S. were to implement that type of policy against them because obviously, you know, they're looking at Taiwan and and uh, are trying to understand what that would look like. So that's going to be a major incentive for people to move away from the dollar as being the sole reserve currency. How much time we have left with that, you know, uh, ability, it's hard to say, but, you know, that whole concept back in the day is deficits don't matter. They definitely matter. It's just they didn't matter as much because we could export that inflation and that is that's coming to an end. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's do a quick transition here uh, to one of our favorite parts of the episode. Get to know Lonnie a little bit more, uh, Matt. Yeah. Hey, Lonnie, is there an aha moment that you've had in the past year or so that's changed how you approach some part of your career, investment strategies, personal life? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, few. Um, I read a book called The Accidental Superpower, and I would recommend that one. So that one opened my eyes a little bit. I was looking outside the U.S. and with all our problems, I was looking outside the U.S. for my next area of investment. And it did bring me back home based on some of the lines of thinking there. And I, I kind of agree with a lot of the, the teachings in that book. And so that one, uh, that was an aha moment. Uh, so now focus back here with, our, with my investing. Nice. 
tell us about an important ritual that you have that you do every day. Well, that's not, I, I don't really have one. <laughs> uh, I prefer a little bit of the chaos. Uh, I enjoy it. Uh, although I do go to bed same time, get up same time, that kind of thing. But outside of that, I do enjoy the, the different days of my life. Nothing, nothing ritual about that. Okay. So, um, how do you measure success? Everyone's kind of got their definition of that, but how, how do you measure success? A couple different ways. Uh, one, I have enough freedom to indulge myself in the things that I enjoy to stimulate my mind, um, and go down pathways geothermal. For example, I very much enjoy that, that arena. And so as long as I have time and freedom to continue helping people in that area, for me, that's a success. Um, and then also that I have enough money coming in that uh, I don't have to worry about my activities of the day. I can have a loss today and it's okay. Uh, and I can learn from it. So to not be in a situation that I really need every day to be a win. And so for me, that takes a lot of the pressure off. So to live in a non-pressured environment is, is a win for me. And that, so to me, you add those two together and that's success for me. That's massive. But I mean, both of those things are massive of time and opportunity essentially is what you're kind of getting at is having a, having the, the, that available. Yeah. Um, you know, if you could have dinner with somebody, anybody dead or alive, uh, who would it be? Travis Pastrana. That guy, he is a sort of a sports, uh, icon. What makes him tick is a little bit elusive to me. Um, when he does something, he does something wholeheartedly at every level all the time. And he's broken records in all kinds of different sporting arenas, uh, motorsports. Um, mm -hmm. I would love an opportunity to sit down and just talk to him about what makes him tick. Uh, it, it's going to be a special something in there. When you were willing to put your life on the line daily for this goal, like, I can't quite fathom that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm yeah. married, so I, I can fathom that. <laughs> I put my life on the line. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you had to choose, whiskey or wine? Oh, uh, whiskey. That was easy. <laughs> <laughs> that was a quick answer. Nice. Do you have a favorite type of whiskey? Comes Smoky. So, any, anything smoky? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay, cool. Well, uh, thank you for coming in and spending time with us today. How can our audience connect with you or get a hold of you? Do you want no one to call you or uh, are you doing consulting currently? How does that work? Yeah, um, I, we are, I am doing consulting. Uh, if you are looking for someone to help with around the energy, indoor air quality, and uh, ducting, problem solving kind of thing, yep, I can help you uh, enjoying that, that space. But uh, outside of that, uh, if you're an investor or you're looking – you know, uh, I'm looking to expand my, my connections across the country. So that's, uh, I'm going to Texas because there's 60 investors meeting to talk to local builders, property managers. And so we're gonna have them all in the room. What a fantastic opportunity. Cause I, you know, you've got to have boots on the ground in those areas. Uh, that's a whole nother podcast. I can tell you how I screwed some stuff up, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that, to just expanding that group. Nice. Okay, cool. Well, uh, thank you all for joining us today. If you uh, find value, value in this show, uh, we have two favors to ask. The first, please subscribe to our podcast. And the second, give us a review. The more subscribers, more reviews we have, the more the show gets great guests. And until the next time, invest in the West. Mm -hmm.